This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this investigation and trial, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexuality that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. The quiet of Ambleside Avenue broke open on December 6, 1978, and so did one of its biggest secrets— that 46-year-old Cynthia Payne was running a sex work business out of her home called Cranmore House. Every few months, 50 or more men would pile into her small two-story place. They would pay Payne for the privilege of food, drink, live sex shows, and in what was soon to be nationally infamous, a luncheon voucher, an otherwise nearly worthless welfare tool. But in Cranmore House, that luncheon voucher gained new value as the men exchanged it upstairs for a little alone time with a woman of their choosing. In the eyes of the Metropolitan Police Department, this meant that Cynthia Payne was a madam, and she was orchestrating the sale of sex within a fully operational brothel, as defined by the Sexual Offenses Act of 1956. This would catapult Cynthia into the national spotlight and lock her into a legal battle that brought this vivacious woman to the edge of hopelessness. What began in 1978 would stretch across an entire decade, and it would force both Cynthia Payne and the British nation to confront their ideals and beliefs in the justice system. How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast original. Each week, we look at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. This week, we're moving into the second half of the story of Cynthia Payne and her legal battles with the court system of Great Britain. Following the charges of operating a brothel in 1978, Cynthia Payne and her defense team would attempt to prove not just her own innocence, but the greater innocence of her sex work practices in general. She refused to go down without a fight and continued to challenge the existing legal framework following her trial in 1980. This created a battle for herself that would last over the next seven years, kicking off a socio-political public debate that would pit sex workers against law enforcement. 
In this case, the court of law and court of public opinion came to a head, bringing into question the entire framework of Britain's sex work laws. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Due to the slow-moving machinations of the justice system, it took two years for Cynthia Payne's case to reach trial in 1980. In that year, the British media found a new obsession. The nature of the rhetoric fell perfectly in between politics, culture, and scandal, a trifecta for any journalist seeking a dramatic story. Clientele, sex workers, and even neighbors spoke up on her behalf— One of her clients, who refused to be named to avoid losing his job, claimed that he was an esteemed professor and that many of the other clients held such high-powered positions as well. He was attempting to give the parties a sheen of legitimacy. Instead, he ignited gossip across the nation. The names of the clients who were caught during the raid on December 6, 1978, had never been released and never would be. Both the police and the judicial system kept it close to the chest. When it became public knowledge that men of high standing were involved, the media machine began to salivate, and so did the citizenry of the country. Many wrote letters to the newspapers filled with their own opinions on Cynthia's crime, and whether or not it was a crime at all. It became the central fixation of the 1980 trial, the question of which men attended this event and why it was only Cynthia who was now being charged. Unfortunately, the side effect of this was that many other voices were drowned out. One former sex worker from Cynthia's Cranmore house gave a statement to the observer saying that, "'It was the best job I ever had. I couldn't stand it as a secretary.' I work when I like and I keep what I earn. If I don't like someone, I don't have to go with them. This anonymous worker still spoke as if the Cranmore house was operational, and she wasn't lying. Even in the midst of the drama leading up to the 1980 trial, Cynthia still saw demand from her clientele. She didn't have parties of the same size anymore, but she kept the house and its services online, even as she faced serious jail time. This was a secret that needed to stay quiet. And as far as Ambleside Avenue could tell, it was as quiet as it had ever been. Again, one of Cynthia's neighbors spoke with the observer, saying, "'There was never any noise or trouble. There was always parking space in front of the house. I was amazed to hear that so many people visited it.'" But in April 1980, Cynthia Payne wasn't going to be able to hide behind closed doors anymore. She would become fully exposed to the public eye, whether she liked it or not. 
Yet her defense counsel, Jeffrey Robertson, believed this might be a good thing. Cynthia in person was the best version of Cynthia. She wouldn't be some theoretical, unseen brothel keeper anymore. She would be the Cynthia that all her friends and clients loved. Again, the anonymous professor and former client told The Observer, Cynthia isn't class-conscious. She's warm, friendly, irascible, excitable, not the least bit proud, loyal to her friends, an individualist. As 47-year-old Cynthia Payne walked into court on April 21, 1980, she was going to call on all these attributes and virtues as her defense raged against prosecuting counsel Donald Farkerson. Their goal was to persuade Judge David West Russell of Cynthia's innocence. Cynthia faced three charges of controlling sex workers and the biggie of operating a so-called disorderly house. This is what Farkerson harped on during his opening statement in front of the judge. He claimed that there was simply no denying the truth here. Cynthia Payne was guilty. There were over 50 men in her residence at the time of the raid, some of them literally caught in the act in one of the four upstairs bedrooms at Cranmore House. Farkerson also wheeled out the apparatus from which Cynthia projected her collected sex films in the living room. Farkerson even showed some of the sex toys and equipment found in the house, hoping to shame Cynthia and her defense into reticence. Of course, the centerpiece of the prosecution was outlining the luncheon voucher scheme. During the two years of lead-up, the press had caught glimpses of Cynthia's brilliant and ironic payment method, but the trial was the first true view of Cynthia's luncheon voucher system. It was a pop culture sensation. Newspaper cartoons and radio talk shows could not get enough. However, as Farkerson outlined with emphasis, these luncheon vouchers were then given back to Payne by the sex workers at the end of each event. From there, Cynthia would give them a cut of the admission fees she'd charged at the beginning of the evening, ostensibly a charge just for alcohol, food, and the living room shenanigans where no sex work took place. Make no mistake, Farkerson pointedly told the judge, this was a cash business. Over 560 pounds had been confiscated from Cynthia on the evening of the raid. There was no way for defense counsel Jeffrey Robertson to deny any of this occurred. It was thoroughly recorded. So Robertson decided to take another route. Recall, this was really a trial about the character of Cynthia Payne and whether or not she could be legally trusted with holding a party like this. In other words, it was time to bring the cultural question to the forefront of the trial. First, he opened by describing the long and arduous road of Cynthia's life. Instead of focusing on the ridiculousness of luncheon vouchers, he appealed to a class consciousness. Cynthia was a woman trying to do what she could to survive. She had been exploited, so she decided that she could build a better system. Instead of subjecting people to dangerous and unreliable access to sex, Cynthia became an educator and hostess. It must be admitted, Robertson addressed to the judge, that Cynthia Payne did not live an opulent lifestyle. 
photographs of Cranmore House and general knowledge of the Streatham neighborhood's socioeconomic position should prove that. Cynthia desired to provide women a safe haven from unsafe conditions. If that meant they wanted to party, or if that meant they wanted to act as a sex worker in a private setting away from the party, Cynthia did not care. All she did was provide shelter, food, and drink. No one was obliged to engage in sexual activity. She did not round up or recruit women. To the contrary, Cynthia Payne was already a member of this community. So what better agent could there be to address its myriad problems? With that, Robertson made sure to appeal to the public discourse. Where did this myriad of problems come from, after all? From low-paid sex workers and middle-aged, low-income women? Or were these problems that stemmed from the British government's inefficient and ineffective sex work policies? Cynthia Payne parties were informal affairs. They did not disturb the neighborhood, and they did not harm the participants in any way, shape, or form. He dismissed the sex toys with a wave of the hand. The police could not hide the fact that no such device was in use during the raid. The toys were a private matter that held no bearing in this trial. With great solemnity, Jeffrey Robertson said that, quote, an endless parade of suburban male respectability beat a path to Cynthia Payne's door. Yet, he said, not one of the 53 men caught in the December 6th raid was on trial for any wrongdoing. Finally, Robertson concluded that the Christmas party is over and she's been left to pick up the tab. It was a powerful conclusion, and it had seemingly won over the courtroom audience. Certainly, Judge David West Russell would follow suit. Jeffrey Robertson sat back down next to his client and whispered reassurances in her ear. But then, on April 23, 1980, the judge made his declaration. To the three counts of controlling sex workers and the one of running a disorderly house, Cynthia Payne was guilty. Payne, the judge continued, had chosen her way of life, and that life path had transgressed the law. She would be fined nearly 2,000 pounds, charged another 2,000 for courtroom fees, and finally imprisoned for 18 months. With that, it was seemingly all over. Cynthia Payne was taken away to Holloway Women's Prison to serve her sentence. When we return, we'll see that Robertson's defense had not completely failed. Cynthia would get herself out of the fire, only to end up back in the frying pan yet again. Now back to the aftermath of Cynthia Payne's 1980 conviction. From within the halls of power, a growing public outcry was heard. The spectator played a role as the media leader in Cynthia Payne's defense. A week after the trial's conclusion, in early May of 1980, an opinion editor published the following. Quote, according to the law, the men committed no offense, and if the other women did, they were not charged. 
only Cynthia Payne is regarded as legally culpable, even though she, the men, and the women were engaged in a joint exercise. But our legislators have not wished the others to be charged, precisely in order to avoid the punishment and the publication of the names of the men whose demand created the supply." End quote. The sex work community also came out in Cynthia Payne's corner. Nina Lopez-Jones of the English Collective of Prostitutes was even published in The Guardian in early May 1980. She wrote that, quote, sex workers are fighting not only against illegality, but also against the isolation and vulnerability caused by illegality. Our campaign for the abolition of all laws against sex workers has had such a tremendous impact that last week, 30 members of parliament signed a motion in support of brothel keeper Cynthia Payne." End quote. With such noise in the public, the court had to accept Cynthia Payne's appeal on May 15, 1980, less than a month after her initial trial. She appeared before Lord Justice Lawton. He was even more stern than Judge David West Russell and opened his statements by repeating that punishments against brothel operators had been part of British law for centuries. The Sexual Offenses Act of 1965 was just the latest of many. Precedent had been set. But Lawton conceded, the public outcry must be addressed. There appeared to be a great discrepancy between the original trial's decision and public opinion. He also spoke out against gossip claiming that he had scoured the list of names from the raid and discovered no one with a law degree as one of the attendants. After saving face here, he finally ruled that Cynthia's sentence would be reduced from 18 months to six. And so, yet again, just a pawn of the legal system, Cynthia's fortunes seemed to reverse she served her time in Holloway and was released on August 20th, 1980. One of her former wealthy clients picked her up outside the prison walls in a Rolls Royce surrounded by reporters. Cynthia Payne flashed them all a V for victory and one might assume for vouchers. There was no denying it now. As her biographer Paul Bailey wrote in the biography published soon after her release, Cynthia Payne was a national celebrity. She was well-served by the British press, most surprisingly by those tabloids that carry titillating pictures of naked girls on one page and high-mindedly vindictive editorials about the increase of vice on another. Over the next six years, the former Monty Python comedian Terry Jones would put together two feature films covering the span of her life, with Julie Walters in the lead. There was plenty of cause for Cynthia Payne to celebrate, and she just couldn't resist. She resumed throwing parties at Cranmore House and did not turn away those who wanted to work out of her shelter. The festivities continued, and with her newfound fame, Cynthia Payne felt a growing sense of invulnerability. After all, she had served her time. The police had gotten their pound of flesh. However, even though the festivities at Cranmore House resumed, the law wasn't done with Cynthia Payne just yet. 
Over the course of three events, from December 1985 to May 1986, a police sting operation was taking place right under her nose. And on May 30th, Cynthia Payne was arrested once again. Nearly seven years after her first trial, the 54-year-old Cynthia Payne returned to court on Thursday, January 22, 1987. This time, she appeared more somber and reserved before the press. In contrast, the press and public were more riled than ever. Everyone wanted a shot of Cynthia for their paper, and everyone wanted a spot inside so they could cover every moment of the drama. Inside, Cynthia Payne met with her new defense counsel, David Spence. They were up against the prosecution led by Tony Longden, and all of this was presided over by Judge Brian Pryor. This time, a jury would decide Cynthia Payne's fate on multiple charges, all once again relating to exercising control over sex workers and running a brothel for personal gain. The court chose to specifically look at three events held at the Cranmore House to analyze the question of guilt. The events in question took place on December 13, 1985, February 21, 1986, and May 30, 1986. The first, of course, was a Christmas event. The other two were held in celebration of the start and end of filming for Terry Jones and Julie Walters' film about Cynthia. However, unbeknownst to Cynthia, a traitor was in her midst. And now he was the prosecution's key witness. His name? Police Constable Stuart Taylor. It all began on November 8, 1985. The Metropolitan Police suspected that Cynthia had not given up her old ways, and her newfound celebrity irked them and injured the force's collective pride. So they enlisted Stuart Taylor to write a letter under the name Peter Tollington. Addressed from Egypt, this Tollington claimed to be an old client of Cynthia's from back in the day. He was going to return to London, and he hoped she was still holding her special parties. And so began a six-month sting operation, as Taylor and, eventually, another police constable called Jack Jones attended three of Cynthia Payne's parties in order to prove that she was controlling sex workers and gaining profit from their work. Taylor and Jones' testimony would be the centerpiece of the prosecution's attack, while Cynthia Payne herself would take the witness stand to defend herself. But first, defense counsel David Spence had an argument to build. During his opening statements, Spence pushed back against Longden and the prosecution's claims by getting very specific. Quote, in this trial, the question of whether Ms. Payne was controlling, directing, or influencing will be an issue, but the main issue is to be gain. What Spence meant to show the jury with this statement was that their main decision was whether or not Cynthia Payne actually held these parties to make herself richer. That would need to be their primary moral consideration. It was a shrewd move as it distanced the trial from actual legality. It was hard to deny that these sex parties took place. 
Instead, Spence asked of the jury, it was up to them to decide whether or not Payne held these events for personal gain or for the betterment of the lives of clients and sex workers alike. During that first Thursday of the 1987 trial, Spence called to witness a few of the women who attended Cynthia's events and one male. First up was a woman who went by the name Britt. Longden attempted to attack her morality by asking how important it was for her to make money from sexual activity. With a twinkle in the eye, Britt replied simply, it helps. This set the tone right away. The prosecution were going to come off as stodgy and old-fashioned if they played too heavily into the moral irresponsibility of sex work. On Friday, January 23rd, David Spence called forth Teresa Banks, an older woman who attended Cynthia Payne's parties. Banks arrived bundled up, her appearance hidden as much as possible. She hoped to remain anonymous, when Longden pressed Banks, asking if she ever charged for sexual services, the woman broke down into full sobs, denying that she ever did. As for why there were so many there on the evening of May 30th, Banks said they were celebrating the completion of Terry Jones' film. Nothing more sinister than that. Finally, David Spence called forth a witness the prosecution did not expect at all. It wasn't a woman but a man named Keith Savage. He was a frequent visitor of Payne's events and a cross-dresser. He was taking a huge risk even showing his face and using his real name in such a public spectacle. Again, Savage denied that Cynthia Payne ever demanded money in exchange for attendance at her events and said that people were free to make their own decisions in private. Savage concluded his testimony by discussing the night of May 30th. As the raid was in progress, two men were practically shouting about paying money for the event. Savage believed they were putting on a show to try and get other guests to admit they had paid for services at the house. With that, Spence had laid all the foundation needed for the defense. It was time for the prosecution's main event. Tony Longden called Police Constable Stuart Taylor to the stand. From Thursday, January 23rd to Monday, January 26th, the prosecution and defense each took turns cross-examining Stuart Taylor and his fellow police constable, Jack Jones, who ended up attending the three parties in question. Prosecuting lead Tony Longden helped Taylor lay out his claims. After Cynthia accepted Taylor on his word, he was invited to attend the December 13, 1985 Christmas party. Taylor outlined his journey through the evening. Cynthia greeted him at the door and escorted him inside. It seems her process had not changed much since 1978. There was still plenty of food and drink and cues often seemed to form on the stairs. Taylor claims that Cynthia Payne introduced him to multiple women throughout the night, who each took him upstairs to a private room. Taylor had a cover story involving sexual dysfunction, so he did not engage in any sexual acts with these women, but he says that each offered their services, and he did pay them 25 pounds each directly. 
So one thing had changed over the years. The luncheon vouchers were out the window. In the eyes of the prosecution, this made the matter even more clear-cut than before. Cynthia Payne ran a brothel, clear and simple. It was a cash business, and cash did exchange hands. Taylor finished his profile of the December 13th party by saying that when he asked Ms. Payne if she herself needed payment, she replied, quote, I normally take the money when you leave. It's 30 for me, 25 for the girls. And so, Taylor says, he paid Cynthia 30 pounds in cash. He also asked if he could bring his cousin, Harold, to her next event. This cousin, Police Constable Jack Jones, was brought to the February 21st, 1986 party. Jack Jones arrived dressed in women's clothes and makeup, hoping to keep any suspicion at bay. He engaged in a similar process as Taylor, meeting with women in the private rooms, paying them 25 pounds each, but refraining from any physical contact. Jones also presented Longden and the prosecution with another key piece of testimony, that he witnessed Cynthia Payne taking lewd photographs in the backyard, accompanied by a male client with a limp and one of the sex workers. All in all, the prosecution worked to paint a damning portrait of deviance and dysfunction through the testimony of Taylor and Jack Jones. At midnight on the evening of May 30th, Stuart Taylor claims to have successfully paid Cynthia Payne the 30 pounds she requested from each visitor. He then went upstairs to the lavatory, pressed a hidden signaling device, and returned downstairs where he asked if he could return to his car to retrieve a forgotten item. When Cynthia opened the front door, the police stormed inside. Longden seemed pleased with Taylor's performance. No further questions, Your Honor, he said as he smiled sadly at the jury. What else needed to be said? But Spence and Cynthia Payne still had a few tricks up their sleeves. Right away, Spence asked Taylor if he was insistent in pressing the money on Miss Payne during the nights of the parties, especially on May 30th. Taylor replied, I wanted our money in her possession at the time of the police raid as I had recorded the serial numbers on the bills. Aha, Spence looked quite pleased with himself. He returned to the claims made by his witness, Keith Savage. This would seem to link Taylor and Jones to the story told by Savage about the party guests who were verbally speaking about paying Cynthia during the May 30th raid. Who else but undercover cops would do something so foolish in the face of imminent arrest? Taylor shrugged this off and stuck to his story. They had paid, and so had others. It didn't matter what was being said during the raid. But then Spence came back with an unexpected jab. Savage did mention something else about the men who were shouting about payments during the raid. He said that the heavier set man, certainly Stuart Taylor, now sweating on the witness stand, had made aggressive, drunken, sexual advances on him, even as the rest of the police were collecting statements. And not only did Taylor do this, 
But Jack Jones also gave Keith Savage a phone number to call so they could get together at a later date. With both of these bombshells dropped, Spence ceased his cross-examining and sat down. If the prosecution wanted to bring sexual deviancy into the spotlight, the defense wasn't afraid to fight back. While Savage's testimony was far from definitive proof, Spence had cast enough ambiguity into the events of May 30, 1986, to confuse and disorder the jury's perception of the prosecution's key witnesses. Coming up, Cynthia Payne takes the stand to defend herself before the jury. And now, back to the trial of Cynthia Payne. The day was Tuesday, February 3rd, 1987. The 54-year-old Cynthia Payne looked diminutive and repressed, contained inside the witness box. Anyone who knew her well might have been worried. This did not seem to be the Cynthia they knew. She was serious. She was angry. And more than that, she was frightened. Longden needed to recover lost ground after Spence's attacks on the respectability and integrity of Stuart Taylor and Jack Jones. With Cynthia Payne in front of him, he had the chance to prove that this woman wasn't as innocent as she seemed. He doubled down on the respectability argument. Longden once again brought in evidence of the sex toys and bondage equipment found inside Cranmore House. Cynthia refused to acknowledge that these items were used at her parties, once again holding to the privacy of her own life against the events in question. Even Judge Pryor couldn't hold back laughter during Longden's initial questioning of pain. But Cynthia wasn't having it. She called the judge out directly. Quote, I am not in the mood for jokes, Your Honor. I am trying to concentrate. Judge Pryor apologized, and the mood, for the first time in days, became deadly serious. Cynthia Payne's life was at stake, and she was not going to let the circus-like atmosphere of the courthouse distract from that. Longden's strategy was already backfiring. He was desperate, so he asked her about Robert Mitchell Smith, the Air Force squadron leader who had become very close with Payne in his later years, even living with her at Cranmore House for stretches of time. Longden began to imply that the bondage equipment had been taken from Smith's residence following his death in 1981. He also brought up the fact that Cynthia had been the one to find Smith dead in his own home after no one had checked in on him for two weeks. Cynthia refuted the idea that she took these items for use at her parties. She explained she had taken them away from Smith's personal residence because she knew he wouldn't want the rest of his extended family to learn of their existence. She was just trying to protect his legacy, even though it covered up who he really was. When Longden continued to press Cynthia on her discovery of the body, Cynthia Payne broke down. She waved off Longden's questions, saying, Don't ask me that. I can stand all the other questions, but not that. Cynthia composed herself, but Longden was thrown off. He couldn't risk causing more damage to the prosecution's image, so he backed down. 
When Spence stepped up to question his client, he opened strong. He explained that Cynthia Payne, circa 1980, upon her release from Holloway Prison, did not want for money. Cynthia had received an inheritance from her father, Hamilton, after he passed in 1980. She also collected a fair amount of money from press interviews conducted in the aftermath of her prison sentence and from selling the rights to her story to Paul Bailey, the biographer, and Terry Jones' film production. Spence asked Cynthia about Cranmore House's mortgage, and she stated that squadron leader Smith had helped her purchase the house outright. Her events were solely due to her love of entertaining. A guest or two might give her a few pounds to cover the cost of food or perhaps bring some bottles to restock her alcohol supply, but she accepted no charge. As for the claims of P.C. Stuart Taylor, Cynthia Payne said he was much pushier at the May 30th event. Quote, "'He put the money into my hand. I pushed it away.' I was worried because he was aggressive, and I don't like anything like that at a party. It was unusual because at the other two parties, he behaved well. After three days of cross-examination, Cynthia Payne stepped down from the witness stand. It was Friday, February 6th, and the trial was coming to a close. The defense seemed strong but one biographical detail would soon threaten their stability. Spence believed he had saved the best witness for last, a former police superintendent named Peter Jones. In the 1970s, Jones had been involved in the initial investigation against her supposed brothel operation. But following her first trial and release, he then became one of her favored guests and friends. Spence knew this would be a huge boon for the defense. The prosecution was relying on the public's trust in the police, but now they had a policeman of their own. After three decades on the police force, Jones retired in 1979. He told Spence that he had been secretly impressed and interested in Cynthia Payne's outlook on life and pleasure and started attending her parties throughout the early 1980s. He claimed that no money ever exchanged hands. He also backed up Keith Savage's claims about Taylor and Jack Jones shouting about paying money during the raid, trying to rile up discontent. Longden wouldn't let this attack stand. He bit back, accusing Peter Jones of losing track of his morals following his retirement. Quote, you got hooked after you had been involved in the investigation and you're not telling the truth today, are you? Peter Jones was offended. He wouldn't take such accusations. He looked Longden in the eye and said, full of conviction, after 30 years service in the police force, I know what the oath means and the importance of it. Case closed, as far as Peter Jones thought. But then Longden revealed his final gambit. He brought up a passage from Paul Bailey's 1980 biography of Cynthia's life. On page 93, Bailey wrote about a former police chief who attended her parties throughout the 1970s, not just after 1979, and that this man of honor enjoyed being whipped. 
This riled Peter Jones. He refused to accept that this police chief in the biography was him. Longden had introduced an ambiguity into Peter Jones's testimony, just as Spence had done to Taylor and Jack Jones. He hoped now to break even in the minds of the jury. If his prosecution lost face, so would the defense. Judge Pryor called the day to a close on this dramatic note and told the parties to prepare for their closing statements on Monday, February 9th. Paul Bailey, the biographer, was mortified. Since writing Cynthia's life story, he had grown to love and respect this woman. He refused to believe that his own book could harm her case. He spent the entire weekend pouring through his biography, trying to identify the source of the discrepancy. At the last minute on Sunday evening, Bailey discovered the error. He had written about two former police chiefs who attended her 1970s events. There was the first, mentioned on page 93, and then a second, under the pseudonym Cuthbert, on page 133. His notes matched this Cuthbert with Peter Jones and backed up Jones's claims that he didn't begin attending events until 1979. When court resumed on Monday, Bailey requested a special presentation with Judge Pryor and was able to provide this evidence to the jury. He hoped this would be enough. All that remained now were the closing statements. Longden wrapped up his argument as simply as he had begun it. Each woman named in the charges against Cynthia was a sex worker. They had accepted cash at some point for sexual services. There was testimony from both sides that showed Cynthia as an able host who often matched guests with these women. And finally, that Cynthia had accepted money during these parties. Although the luncheon voucher scheme was out the window, Longden said that she had merely created another device, a variation on a theme. She was still a brothel operator and she did it for money. Spence tried to keep the mood lighter, although the jury at this point had adopted Cynthia Payne's seriousness. He told them, what was served up at Cynthia Payne's parties may not have been your cup of tea, but one of the differences between Ms. Payne and many people is that she does not find other people's sex distasteful. In fact, it is something which gives her pleasure. Outside of this, she is a woman of very few vices. The closing arguments made, the prosecution and defense both rested. Judge Pryor briefed the jury and reminded them that this was not circus entertainment, this was law, and it was time for them to lay down the law. The jury deliberated for two days. On the morning of Wednesday, February 11, 1987, Cynthia Payne held court down in the courthouse lunchroom, autographing copies of her biography. She posed for press photos, holding a small stuffed policeman doll as her companion. In the afternoon, the call came down the line. Judge Pryor wanted them back in the courtroom. The room overflowed. The court usher had to push reporters out of the witness stand, the last remaining seat in the house. The jury returned. 
Judge Pryor looked down at them expectantly and gave permission to speak. Everyone waited with bated breath, and then the judgment arrived. Not guilty. The room literally erupted into applause and cheers. A grin finally returned to Cynthia Payne's face. On her way out of the courtroom, she even winked at the despondent Stuart Taylor and Jack Jones. She had finally won her freedom. Cynthia Payne attributed her victory to the public support for her cause and the mistreatment of sex workers across the country. Her celebrity did not fade, and she continued to write cheeky books and support sex workers for the rest of her life. In 1988, she even formed her own independent political party called the Rainbow Alliance Pain and Pleasure Party, spelled as she spelled her name with a Y. Although she never won a seat in Parliament, she remained an advocate for the legalization of sex work until her death in 2015 at the age of 82. But her story remains as an example of the strange contradictions of sex work and legal regulations, especially in a country like Britain where sex work is ostensibly legal. There is still a fight raging to protect vulnerable sex workers and define an acceptable and legal place for them in societies across the world. But in 1987, Cynthia Payne won a small victory for the cause that would keep it moving into the 21st century and beyond. Unlike the luncheon voucher that she made infamous, Cynthia Payne wanted her social service to be useful and real. On her way out of the courthouse in 1987, reporters shouted questions at the newly victorious advocate. What will you do now, Cynthia? They all asked, breathless with excitement. Cynthia responded in a calm, measured tone, full of certainty for the first time in a long while. Have a party, of course. Thanks for listening to Not Guilty. We'll be back Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Not Guilty, as well as all of Parcast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Not Guilty is written by Jack Bentel. I'm Vanessa Richardson.